Morning. How are we doing? I feel good this morning. Who feels good? One hand. One of the ways that God speaks to me is through dreams. And two nights ago, actually on a Saturday morning, I had this profound dream. And in the dream, I was standing here giving a prophetic word. And when I woke up, I was convinced more than anything that this was the word of the Lord for people here today. First of all, who here has a fidget spinner? Um, Who uses a fidget spinner? Would you just stand? You've just set yourself up. I know. This prophetic word is for you. Maybe you're a person that uses a fidget spinner. Maybe you've got another device that you use to fiddle with. Maybe you just can't sit still and you squeeze a ball. Maybe you flick your pen. This is all the things I saw in this dream. So if that's anyone else, would you stand? That's in the neighborhood. That's fine. All right. This is what I felt the Lord saying in the dream. This is what he said. That there's coming, you're, you're stepping into a season of creativity. And the Lord has set aside this season where you're going to see strategies unfold through creativity. Creative ways that he is unlocking. Maybe it's issues where maybe you're a teacher and you're like hitting the ceiling on how to relate with kids and he's going to unlock a very simple yet profound way through creative kingdom strategy. So why don't we just um, stretch forth forth our hands to, to these people standing. Lord, we just release grace in this season for even as they're going about their normal things in life, that, Lord, they would be such aware of your presence, speaking to them in such profound yet simple ways. Lord, we pray that as they go about the very things that you've called them to do, Lord, that they would have such an awareness. Lord, maybe it's dreams, maybe it's visions, maybe it's driving along in the car and they see a sign, or maybe it's a conversation someone says to them that connects the dots, and all of a sudden there's clarity, there's kingdom perspective. We release grace on them in this season in the name of Jesus. Amen. Who's going to buy a fidget spinner this afternoon? Like Adrian said, we're kicking off a series on worship. And you can see on the graphic behind me, there's a slogan underneath it that says, for the audience of one. And here in Hope Point Church, we unashamedly, our goal is to pursue Him and Him alone. In these moments this morning when we came in and we worshipped God, It is a privilege for us to give him worship. There may be many reasons why churches gather and why they sing songs. But here we want to clearly proclaim that in this space, it's all about him. You might say, well, what's the lights for? What's a sound system? That's so that we can hear. There are means to an end, but the end result is that we come into this place and we minister 
to the Lord. How many know that it's not the band up here and you're the audience or we're the audience? We're all the band. When we come into this place corporately, we're all the band. We're all ministering to the Lord. There's no spectators. There's no, there's no critics. That's all for another place. When we come to worship, we're all in this together. It's all about Him. And so um, this is going to be a fun, exciting series on worship. Um, and we're going to journey together in that. Louis Giglio says that worship is our response to who Jesus is and what he has done. Let me say that again. In its simplest form, worship is our response to who Jesus is and what he's done. A time of worship like we had this morning is not to just warm the preacher up. It's not to just fulfill some sort of duty. It's not to just do something so we feel better about ourselves after we sing some songs. Worship is more than just merely a song. The praise and the songs are so important, but it's more than that. And as has been spoken this morning, it's a lifestyle. Worship is is a response, it's an attitude, it's a lifestyle to who Jesus is and what he's done. The first mention of worship in the Bible is actually when Abraham was taking Isaac up to be sacrificed. He didn't know then that he was going to sacrifice his son but the, the Bible tells us that he actually took off on a journey to worship God. That was where we first get the mention of this word worship. But how many know that worship actually initiated before humanity? Worship didn't just start then in, in Genesis, but it actually started before creation. It actually started in the heavens. How many know that Satan was actually the lead worshipper in heaven? Worship actually had its origin in heaven. And there in this place of heaven where people were, where the angels were were worshipping God, Satan was the lead worship leader. So I'd like to propose that he knows a thing or two about worship. I love the fact that in our church we're not devil focused. How many agree? We're not looking for a demon under every rock. But I love what Bill Johnson says is we just focus on the enemy long enough to pull the trigger. I love this. It's important that we know who our enemy is, but it's literally long enough to pull the trigger. We don't live in response to the enemy. We live in response to the Father. A big part of our journey is actually learning. When I say us, I'm meaning myself and Rachel and our family, is learning how to ignore what the enemy is doing in our lives. The power of ignore. But it is important that we understand who our enemy is, his tactics, 
and what we're up against. As I said, Satan was the worship leader in heaven. And in Isaiah, if you can turn there, Isaiah chapter 14, verse 12, we're going to read a couple of verses here. Isaiah chapter 14, we'll start with verse 12. This is prophetic language from the prophet talking about Satan. And this is what it says. It says, How you have fallen from heaven, morning star, son of the dawn. You have been cast down to the earth, you who once laid low the nations. You said in your heart, I will ascend to the heavens. I will raise my throne above the stars of God. I will sit enthroned on the Mount of Assembly, on the utmost heights of Mount Zaphon. I will ascend above the tops of the clouds. I will make myself like the Most High. How many know that there is only one Most High? Verse 15. But you are brought down to the realm of the dead, to the depths of the pit. This is prophetic language here that we read in the Bible about Satan before he was cast out of heaven. We see here that in this moment, Satan was the one that was literally taking the worship, the angelic worship, and offering it to God. He was like a conduit, just like what we were doing this morning. Everything that was coming to mind that was, he was worthy of, we were passing it to him, we were magnifying his name, we were lifting him up on high, and Satan was doing this in heaven. And all of a sudden, rather than allowing this worship to pass through him, he decided, hang on, I'm going to take some of that. And it says, he said in his heart that he wanted to be just like God. There was some sort of pride and arrogance that arose in the heart, in the mind of Satan, where he actually wanted to be like God. And rather than being a conduit that, 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 that just flowed worship through, he wanted to take worship. For himself. I would like to propose that Satan understands the importance of worship. Satan understands the significance of worship. And Satan understands the power of worship. Have you, have, it, have you ever wondered why sometimes it's hard to worship? Have you ever wondered why when you wake up in the morning, maybe you're like, hey, I'm going to get alone with God, I'm going to worship Him, I'm going to live this lifestyle of worship, then all of a sudden it's like freezing cold, there's every excuse under the book, and it's just like it's not happening. And sometimes we think, hey, we just need to take another Barocca. How many times that's not always the answer? Because how many know that we're in a war? And one of the greatest things that Satan wants to do is to cripple our worship. Because he knows the significance of it. He knows the power and he knows the importance of our worship to God. I can imagine that when God was creating the earth, Once again, this is my imagination. This is not in the Bible, by the way. 
Don't ask me for a verse reference for this. But I can imagine when God was creating the earth, we know that he separated the waters and the earth. He created the stars, the skies. Then he started onto the animals. He created the birds in the air, the fish in the sea. This amazing, intricate creation. Everything with a purpose. And I can imagine that after he had done all that, Satan was there and, and maybe he was having this conversation with God and he said, but who's going to worship me? And maybe in that moment, God turned and said, took some clay, breathed upon it and said, he's going to worship me. She's going to worship me. And right then, from that moment on, the enemy, Satan, has been trying to steal our worship to God. From that moment on, he's tried to sabotage, destroy, destruct our worship. He knows how significant it is, how important it is, and how powerful it is. It was actually four years ago that myself and Rachel and our family moved over to America for a year. For those that don't know, we, we were in a church called Bethel Church for a year, and shortly after we arrived there, we, we were at Bible College there and we were doing stuff with the church, and shortly after we arrived there, we had an opportunity to sit and have an informal conversation with a worship leader by the name of Stephanie Gretzinger. And Stephanie was, um, then was a, a worship leader at Bethel Church. She had written songs. She, was a passionate, she is a passionate worshiper of God. And so there was a small group of us, and it was very informal. She came in. I think it was maybe, was it one and a half to two hours, where there was just an informal conversation with Stephanie Gretzinger. And we sat around, and within five minutes, I became extremely uncomfortable. Extremely uncomfortable. Now, Stephanie Gretzinger is not a rude person. She's very quietly spoken. She's not trying to intimidate people. She is what you would expect with one of these beautiful ladies up on the stage here. And... But I was very uncomfortable. And by the way, that was the most uncomfortable year of my life, being at Bethel Church. But in this moment, after her speaking for five minutes, I was very uncomfortable. And it was sort of that uncomfortable state where I wanted to, I wanted to leave the room, but I knew that there was something that I needed in the room. And so I didn't really want to engage. I didn't ask any questions. There wasn't a lot of eye contact. And I just remained in the room, but I really wanted to get out, but there was something telling me I needed to stay in. I do not remember one word that Stephanie said. Not one word. But as she started to share about her journey with God, I was overcome by someone who had just stepped into the room who had totally surrendered everything. I realized in this moment, and, I, and I'm probably struggling to articulate this to you because I still don't have words to explain what actually happened in that moment. 
But there was a moment in time where she walked in the room and even when she shared her testimony about God, she would get to the name of Jesus and it was though she could barely not get the words that tears started flowing down her face. And I just realized, wow, I'm now sitting with someone who has created history with God, who is intimate with God, who is a worshiper. There was one point in her story where she literally fell off, well, didn't fall off, but she got down on her knees. She just didn't care what people thought. She was so impacted by the Lord himself. It was like every fiber, and I'm struggling to explain this, but every fiber, every molecule in her body was totally surrendered to the Lord. There's another woman in scripture that we, I want to have a look at today, and that's in Luke chapter 7, verse 36. If you can turn your Bibles to Luke chapter 7, verse 36, this is going to be, be a passage for today. This story here in Luke, this passage here, I believe, shows us what worship is and what worship isn't. I believe this passage here gives us a really clear picture of what a lifestyle of worship looks like. How are we doing? Verse 36. When one of the Pharisees invited Jesus to have dinner with him, he went to the Pharisee's house and reclined at the table. A woman in that town who lived a sinful life learned that Jesus was eating at the Pharisee's house. So she came there with an alabaster jar of perfume. As she stood behind him at his feet weeping, she began to wet his feet with her tears. Then she wiped them with her hair, kissed them and poured perfume on them. When the Pharisee who had invited him saw this, he said to himself, If this man were a prophet, he would know who is touching him and what kind of woman she is, that she is a sinner. We're just going to stop there today, but you can go and read the full passage. It's intriguing, this passage. But this is a a scandalous story. I read this this week and I said to Holy Spirit, Holy Spirit, speak to me afresh as I read this story. And as I started to read the words in this story, I started putting myself in the place of Jesus or one of the disciples at that table. This is a scandalous story. When the Bible refers to this notorious sinner, as um, this, this woman who is a notorious sinner, it is a prostitute. And here we have Jesus who's just been traveling around on his amazing campaign, preaching, healing the sick, doing all this multiplying food, all these miraculous things. And all of a sudden, the most prominent religious leader has invited him over for dinner. Here Jesus is sitting there with a the senior pastor, the assistant pastor, the six elders, 
the deacons. You get the picture. And here comes this notorious woman, this prostitute. She comes in, and if you were me with Jesus, you'd probably try and push her out the door because you and me are worried about our reputation. What's my followers going to think? What's these important people, these religious people going to think? This is not normal. There's going to be some sort of affiliation between me and this woman. But yet Jesus pushes all that aside because he didn't care about his reputation because there was restoration right in a moment. In verse 38 in the Passion Translation, it says she came broken and weeping. She came broken and weeping. Scholars tell us that when she broke this alabaster jar... This was a payment, this was like a dowry. It was a payment for her future husband. This alabaster jar in those times was reserved for a dowry for inheritance for her future husband. And in this moment when she broke this alabaster jar and poured the the contents out upon Jesus, what it was saying was this, I put my future in the hands of Jesus. This is what it was saying. I put my future in the hands of Jesus. And here's what the Bible says. Once again in the Passion Translation, in in the second part of verse 38, it says, Then she opened her flask and anointed his feet with her costly perfume as an act of worship. As an act of worship. In this moment, this notorious sinner, this, this, this prostitute woman has come and poured out her future, essentially put all her eggs in the one basket and said, I am yours. I give you control of my future. Scholars also tell us that this whole act of what she was doing with anointing Jesus in this moment, in that culture, actually, she was, it was a defining moment where she was announcing, I will no longer go back to the way I once lived. This is incredible. So here she comes to Jesus in this act of worship. She says, hey, I surrender my future to you. But she also says, hey, I've burned the bridges of my past. This woman is is declaring in this moment that the sinful life that she now lived, there's, there's no longer any attachments to her sinful life. Culturally, we understand and scholars tell us that she was proclaiming in that moment that I have no choice but and I will not go back to my sinful life. Broken and weeping, she comes to Jesus. You can understand whatever um, history that she's had in her life up to this point. She obviously had come to a point where she's like, hey, there's something about Jesus. I'm coming to him. And the Bible says this was an extravagant act of worship. 
How many know that she didn't come in, this unnamed woman didn't come in playing the keyboard? She didn't come in singing a song. Although that's all so important and we do that. And next week I'll be up here preaching about the, the, you know, the power of declaration of songs. Not physically next week, but you get the point. But the point is that she didn't come all dressed with a speech to Jesus about how she was going to stop living her sinful life. She didn't come like in a perfect way using all the buzzwords. She actually came broken and weeping. And the Bible's dialogue on this is, this is an extravagant act of worship. Her act of worship was so extravagant that she was literally saying, I no longer have control of the future and I let go of control of the past. Incredible. We see in this story of what it means to have a lifestyle of worship. In this same story, we have a contrast here, what it means to not operate out of a lifestyle of worship. We, we, we see here a man who is named. His name is Simon and his friends. It says they're religious leaders. And Simon's invited Jesus over to his house. He's done a great thing by being hospitable to, it, to an extent. How many know that Simon and his friends, they've got masks, they've got facades, they've got walls, they've got these things that are guarding the toxicity of their heart. We see in other passages where Jesus is always addressing this. And here we see that these men, they're sitting there and they've got the very Messiah in their house and they're guarded. They've got their masks up. They've got these, these walls up around their minds, their hearts, so no one can really see what they're like. And right in the middle of this environment, in bursts in this woman who is weeping and broken. And she gives everyone a first lesson on what it means to be a worshiper of God. This unnamed woman, she sacrificed everything. Simon and his friends, they gave out of their convenience. She sacrificed everything. They gave a token gift. And in that moment four years ago, as I, as I walked back home, that afternoon, after this two-hour session with Stephanie Gretzinger, I realized that I had just stepped into the company of someone who is saying yes continually to God, and there was a difference with my yes. In that moment, I just had a, a realization of someone who was sacrificing all where I was just doing things out of convenience.
True worship always costs something. The more and more I'm around church, I realize that there is actually areas of gray. But worship is black and white. It either is or it isn't. It's not about the song we sing, although that's important. It's actually about the issue of our heart. It's actually that, that, that place where we say, God, you can have it all. And we don't just say it in a song, but we actually live from that place. That posture, that response that we say to him, you can have it all. Whatever the cost, you can have it all. Whatever is, 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 whatever is in front of me, whatever is about to come, I don't even need to know, but I'm saying you can have it all. And we sacrifice, we say yes to him. We might just ask the worship team to come back up. I've got five minutes. What does it look like to have a lifestyle of worship? It's great to read a story like this and say, wow, that is incredible. But what does it actually look like when it's Tuesday morning and there's four kids in the house? When you're moving from the nappy station to the sink full of dishes? When you're exhausted? I believe that a lifestyle of worship looks like as you walk along there, it doesn't mean you're, you're necessarily going to run off and fast and pray, but it looks like a simple cry that just comes out of your heart that says, God, whatever it takes, use me. God, I give you my life. I hold nothing to myself. Or what does a, life, a, a lifestyle of worship look like? When I've spent all my life building a business, maybe it looks like I get to that place where I say, hey, God, you can take control of my business. Maybe you've given control to to the Lord in so many areas of your life, but maybe the business is one area you're like, hey, I've built this, this is mine. A lifestyle of worship looks like that we, we literally say, Lord, would you take this business that I've built and I give control of it to you. Maybe a lifestyle of worship looks like when you get a, a bad doctor's report. And when you look at that negative report and you just decide, hey, I'm not going to give in to fear. And you believe and you make a statement that says, hey, I'm going to put all my eggs in one basket. I'm going to believe the one who is forever faithful. What what does a lifestyle of worship look like? 
when you're believing for your kids to be reconciled back to you and reconciled back to God. Maybe it looks like you just continue to trust when it's difficult. Maybe it means that although you don't understand a heap of things, you just say, hey, you come to the Lord just like this unnamed woman who is broken and weeping, and you just say, hey, I put the future in your hands. Maybe a lifestyle of worship looks like you actually allow someone to see inside for the very first time. You remove those masks, remove those walls. And you allow a community of people to speak into your life. You become vulnerable. It's awkward, but it's authentic. Maybe it looks like you just come broken and weeping and you just say, I've got nothing left. Brian Johnson says this amazing quote. He says, consider it a gift when your only option is God. Consider it a gift when your only option is God. That's easier to say if you've had multiple options. But for someone who's went through tough things and their only option has been God, it's so true. Consider it a gift when your only option is God. A lifestyle of worship is surrender. It's living a lifestyle of surrender. Just says, I don't even know how to explain this. I don't even know how to articulate this. But all I know is I'm surrendering. I surrender my dreams. I surrender my desires. I surrender my family. I surrender their futures. I surrender my job. I surrender my financial success. I surrender my retirement. I surrender my ideas. I surrender the things I believe. And we lay it all out and we say, it's yours. You see, when we step into this place of a lifestyle of worship, when we come together, the overflow is we sing songs. We worship and we praise Him because that's just an expression of what's going on in here. Would you just stand this morning? We might sing something for a few minutes if that's all right. True worship will always cost us something. Maybe you're here this morning and you think, hey, the words I'm speaking to God, He doesn't really hear them. I'm here to tell you He does. Worship is powerful, it's significant. So this morning we're going to worship Him again. I know we've done it a lot. But I just want your cry to be in every fiber, 
every molecule of your body, however you know how, is just to surrender to Him again. Can we do that this morning?